when we go on ground i think the practice is not to just drop off stuff at the ketul kampung house or whatnot but to like individually go and deliver speak to them find out what are their needs how can we just you know continue to support them instead of making it an one-off thing One thing I always say that books are only accessible to those who do not need it. And books are not accessible to those who need it most. Even with so little that they had, they didn't even have much resources. They didn't even have electricity. But they cooked for our team, caught fish for them, made sure they had a really good meal and thanked them for you know food that they have sent and whatnot. Hello everyone and welcome back to one more episode of Euphoria by Malaysia Kini. And on today's episode, I've got two amazing guests. I've got Renu. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Renu. I work as an education NGO for my day job. And on the side, I do volunteering work. And I also have Andrew Yap. He's the founder of Big Bad Wolf Books and Book Access. Hi everyone, thank you for having me on this show. And if you guys are wondering what exactly we are talking about on this particular episode, we are actually relating back to what actually happened to our country in over the past a month and a half, say around two months, December, January. It is actually the flash flood that hit you know almost every single part of the country. And uh, we're having Renuka here to talk on the perspective of being a flood relief volunteer. And uh, we're speaking to Andrew, and I think most of you guys know where uh, where Andrew is coming from and how Big Bad Wolf has lost almost two to three million books due to the flood so with that in mind i guess we can start with renu first right i i know you know there were many ngos who, who helped out flood victims many ngos who helped out many different parties to aid the situation i know you know support was something which we were lacking in in some ways and we could see sort of the country you know get together gather resources gather manpower to make everything a little bit better for other Malaysians so what exactly inspired you to volunteer to help with the flood in the first place you know I think in all honesty I uh, grew up in Kale and floods is something that I knew always hit the east coast uh, but I've never seen it in a state so close to me Um, so when it hit Sri Mudar and parts of KL and Selangor, I was shocked. For the first time in my life, people close to me were affected. It always felt like a faraway idea. Um, so when it hit Sri Mudar, I had friends there and we were sending like supplies. Just you know, I was just contributing financially. And then I found out that there was an oversupply in Sri Mudar when a team of a group of friends of mine, an NGO, actually came back with more supplies than when they went there. Because people had just left supplies on the road of food and water, and it was unattended, so they actually brought it back to redistribute it. And that same night, I actually saw a post of a friend from Mentakap, um, actually a stranger, uh, from Mentakap in Pahang, who shared that it's flooded there. They are on their roofs, but they have not received any form of aid, and it was really bad. Like flood levels were above traffic light level. That gives people a picture of how bad it was, and I couldn't imagine how not very far from away from us, people are not receiving any form of aid. And number one, I have no experience in flood relief. Two, I do not belong to any NGO for that matter of fact. But I thought that someone had to do it. We cannot just keep sharing what we see on social media. We need to take action because I think right. there is an idea that someone else will do it. So I decided that what we could do was reallocate resources that we had in KL and Selangor to be channeled to Pahang. But the biggest problem that we had at that time was actually 
the roads to Pahang were also affected by landslides and the floods. And so while waiting for the roads to open up, I decided to pull together NGOs who were working on ground here to redistribute and reallocate them to go to Pahang. So I think we were one of the first few teams that went to Pahang. We actually started by going to Kara because that was the road that was nearest to us and was accessible. Then we went to Bentong and then slowly we went to Mentekap, Chenur and Temerlo. Yeah, so we covered all these different parts. That's amazing. And uh, is this your first time volunteering? Um, no, it's not my first time, right. but it's my first time managing something of this scale. So I think to give people mm. a bit of an idea, one, I didn't have any funds to tap into, but knew for us to mobilize something like this, we would need funding, we would mm. need volunteers and support, and everything came from people I knew, people I didn't know, social media and strangers. And I think to just really picture it, we had zero funds, so like we started with nothing, and I raised over a hundred k in a period of a couple of days to run this whole Pahang Darat Banje Pahang initiative. And a hundred k was from over three hundred individual donors wow. in such a short span of time. And then we had about fifty volunteers with four by fours. Like you know, we sent thirty six trucks in one day, fourteen, fifteen trucks from KL to Pahang. Because in many areas, they didn't have even water. There was no water supply. Let's not even go into food, right? They don't even have basic clean water. Um, and then we got mm. sponsorships from like Joey Mattress, Libres. You know, so all these things just started to come in. And people volunteered. And they were complete strangers. Like a lot of people asked me, did you know of these people beforehand? No, I did not. Um, and then another part of what I thought was getting NGOs to work together. Because I think a lot of time people work in silos. And sometimes you just need someone to bring everyone together. And so what we did was mobilize NGOs from KL and Slango and then mobilize on-ground NGOs in Pahang who are familiar with the area but don't have resources. So it's just connecting people and bringing together resources. And I think that's pretty much what I did. And I've never done something like this before on my own. So it's the first mm. time for me too. Right. And and you said, you know, you gathered, what, over 50 trucks. You collected over 100,000 ringgit. How did you find all these people? How did you how did you manage to get, you know, all these NGOs uh, to work together? How did you do it? It's a lot of work. Um. So what I did, we were very fortunate that it was the last two weeks of December that a lot of people were on leave. A lot of students were free. So I just gathered a few people who are very skilled at particular things to put together mm. a donation page for someone to uh, manage logistics and operations for me to manage like fundraising. So I just distributed everyone to do little tasks. Uh, these were people who I knew, friends, family, whatnot. Mm. But really, in terms of how do we manage and how do we scale up, I think it was social media. So I actually put one post that went viral only on Instagram, in fact, and I had to like stop it because I was like, we've got enough funds. Thank you. Like we've hit 50K and then money just started to come in. A lot of it was just people DMing and messaging me like, how can I help? And like in what capacity? So like, I think to just share a story, right? One of our four wheel drive cars actually broke down in the middle of the road and I posted because like we needed help, right? And someone said, I know people always pay for the cost of like purchasing stuff for like the victims and whatnot, but nobody really takes care of the welfare of the people doing this work. So they'll cover mm. all the expenses for the car repair and the tow truck. And I was like, wow, that's so nice. I completely don't know you, you know? Um, and it, it, for me, it was a bit unbelievable that people would donate to my personal account. And, you know, like you, you mentioned about the conditions of the places that you have visited. Mm. A lot of us managed to see it over video. I didn't have the chance to volunteer but like, you know, I've seen all these videos I've donated. But how's it like, you know, as, as a volunteer who's been on the ground, 
can you roughly describe how it's like mm. over there when you when you go and do work? Um, I think particularly, I actually went to Sungai Gabai, which is a popular waterfall spot. It was gone, yeah, and I've been to that waterfall. Like it was destroyed. I've been to that waterfall annually, and to see it completely wiped out, it it doesn't even look recognizable. Um, basically, kepala air. I think that's what they call it in Malay, right? Mm. A kepala air hit, and the houses were completely wept, uh, like swept away. Um, in certain parts of the waterfall, and that so there are orangasi people and whatnot who stay there. But because it's so inaccessible, a lot of people haven't gone there to deliver supplies, and we're in like the main areas of Ulangat. Um, so that was one experience I think. And when we go on ground, I think the practice is not to just drop off stuff at like Ketul Kampung's house or whatnot, but to like individually go and deliver, speak to them, find out what are their needs, how can we just you know continue to support them instead of making it a one-off thing. Um, right, okay. and really understanding from them what's like, yeah. Right. So I guess the key bit about volunteering is one-off contributions are great, but it's it's sustenance, like, I guess that is very yes. important, like, right? Yeah, yeah. And and when you met these people, how were they like? Uh, what mm. what were the the issues that they were facing? I, I'm I'm pretty sure different families have different issues, mm. but like you know, what have you seen that you know people like who's not been on the ground? Would not mm. have known. I think I will move to talk about when we went to Pahang actually. So mm. we've been working with Orang Asli villages in specific, and so in Pahang we did food and relief aid actually. But then we went on to do rebuilding in this area. So this part of Pahang which I'm talking about or in Orang Asli Kampung is near Sungai Telemong. So there's a there's a very popular picture that people see. It's like a river washed in with logs, and this Orang Asli Kampung there are eleven houses. They were completely swept by mm. not just the floods but landslide as well. So all the houses, everything was gone. And so when I went there, I think it was really understanding that these communities have lost everything, and priority at this moment is making sure their basic needs are met and making sure that they have place to stay in the coming days because they were just like mm. under like plastic shelter, machamto, um, and a lot wow. of people were sick. There was a lot of medical aid needed. So when I went there, I only went actually during the rebuilding times. And when I spoke to them, I realized that actually people have been giving them a lot of supplies that they don't need or they don't use. Like, for example, multiple stoves or a lot of electronical items. And they're in Orang Asli Kampung with no access to electricity at that moment. And so when in conversation with them, it's also understanding what are their needs and how can we meet those immediate needs. So for instance, it was then rebuilding and housing. So what we're actually in the process of doing now is rebuilding 11 houses. We are almost done actually. So they have basic shelter, which is very important, especially for elderly people, young children and women in the, their communities. Mm. So mm-hmm. I think it's really about getting to know what the community needs and how can you match what they need. All right. So before I go to Andrew, can can you just tell us what is the biggest challenge that you face throughout this entire process? I think it's not knowing what to do as well, in all honesty. It's our first time, you know. We're not very familiar with every nook and corner mm. in Pahang, and trying to coordinate this from very far away was quite difficult. Um, right. That was one, and second one is is managing the amount of emotion. You know, there's so much 
emotions that actually consume volunteers and the people, whether you're front end, back end, it's very emotionally taxing. And I think it, it definitely did get physically and mentally draining. Imagine doing this repeatedly for a couple of days. I, I guess not for myself, but the people that I was working with, they were very, very tired eventually. And it was a challenge to make sure people were, you know, we had a consistent amount of resources and the energy to continue and keep going. So I think that was one of the biggest challenges. I think, you know, over time we learned and we figured it out. Like every other time we make a trip, we come back and we report you know, what were things that we could do better? How can we improve um, so that we don't repeat same mistakes? And I mean, like, we're not flood relief experts, right? We really don't know how to mm. do this. So we're figuring out as we go. Those were some of the biggest challenges. I guess, like, to me, I thought funding would be a very big challenge or getting support from the people. But, you know, Malaysians and, I mean, non-Malaysians, everybody didn't fail at this yeah. point of time. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny that, you know, most of us found it very surprising how Malaysians got together. But, you mm. know, we'll take what we can get, yeah. Uh, so now moving on to, to Andrew. Now from a perspective of not just a business owner, but a business that is committed to a very important cause, uh, literacy. So how extensive was the damage caused to your business? The one thing about floods is, uh, I mean, it's bad because... Especially ours, uh, we had it bad, you know, it was up to about five feet and um, water gets into everything, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we have a warehouse, which is about 200,000 square feet. And can you imagine, um, you know, the whole floor plate is was all drenched for almost three days. It was just soaking there for three days, mm -hmm. right? And um, it's not just the books. Um, I think a lot of people have seen the video. The latest count now is uh, 3.5 million books, right? That's and, uh, crazy. I mean, we said, you know, 3.5 million books. Can you imagine uh, one book per household? You can literally put, you know, uh, a book in each household in Malaysia, exactly. right? It's yeah. all gone. It's all wasted. And then uh, the damage to not just the inventory, but also the building, the furniture, you know, our equipment, the machines and everything. So, oh, I mean, everything on the on, on the ground floor was destroyed. And, mm. um, you know, the, the cleanup process is very long and extensive. I you know it's quite sad that um, it's not uh, just things that belong to the company, but also our colleagues. You know, I think there's almost like 15 cars that were uh, submerged underwater. It really Gosh. sad because um, after the third day when we, we, we could manage to go back into the office, there was mm. about... 10 of us that were actually trapped in the office uh, on the higher floors because the water was so high, right? So, so we just couldn't uh, get out and then we just had to be there. Some of our colleagues couldn't drive out their cars in time because the water was too high and they just left it there. So when the water subsided after three days, we quickly began the, the cleanup process. That resulted in the huge mess that everyone saw, you know, because some people thought that it was a landfill, you know, that uh, we put the books in. But it wasn't a landfill. It was actually... At the, the back storage. of our warehouse, right? We immediately had to evacuate all the wet books right away because uh, we lost 3.5 million. We have about 10 million books and it would damage the rest of the books because of the humidity. The humidity in the warehouse rose up about three times, right? So in order to save the rest of the books, the wet books had to just be, you know, chucked out. And the recycling guys, you know, they, they are normally used to taking, you know, one ton, two tons, right? Or one truck, two trucks. They're not used to be taking like a thousand trucks, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we could throw out faster than they could actually remove. But what was really sad is that after, you know, while we're doing the cleanup process, and then there were cars that were still left in the warehouse for a few days, you know, and these were the guys that they couldn't even come back to work to rescue their cars or clean up their cars because 
their own homes were uh, in 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 shambles. I took the liberty to to whoever's car that was still here, you know, help them clean up the cars, you know, and get it ready to go to the workshop and all. So, in terms of the extent of the damage, in fact, uh, we are looking at you know almost forty to fifty million ringgit worth of damages. That's crazy. Yeah. And the books that that were lost in the flood, is there anything that can be done to have it salvaged, or it's like completely gone? So here's the interesting thing, you know, and this is very in tune with what and who we are as a company. We created a huge mountain, and in fact, um, it was like a valley, you know, multiple mountains, right, of books at the back. So one night, uh, I think on on the second or third night, uh, the security guard calls me because the mountain was so big that it spilled onto the back of our warehouse, over the fence, even crushed our fence, and it spilled onto the main road at the back, right. And wow. so, the uh, security calls me at 2 a.m. Oh, here's a fun fact. I actually live in a warehouse upstairs. So, currently, I'm you know, in office, you know. And so, so the guard calls me and said that, hey, there are strangers at the back of the warehouse. So, I went uh, to see what's happening. And they were, you know, um, families, you know, mom, dad, and you know, the kids and all. And they were literally in our warehouse because from the main road, they could just walk onto the pile of the books. They really encroached into our warehouse and they were just looking for books and filtering out, you know, what can be saved, what can't be saved, right? Then I said, I said, excuse me, I said, actually, you guys can't be doing this, you know, it's a private property. And I said, the books, uh, it's not safe for children because, you know, it's floodwaters, you know, floodwater is very dirty, a lot of bacteria. And then the books become moldy and all that kind of thing, right? So, but they said that it's okay, like, you know, they can dry the books and all. You know, how, how do you actually say no? And this... This one thing sometimes we don't realize, um, like what Renu said, different people got different needs and mm. we do need to tailor the needs of what and ask them what do they really want. Mm. And so these families at the back, children normally uh, read every day, you know, uh, they reread the books that they have, they have a mini library, right? And so now at night, they got nothing to read. Then they here, they see books, you know, they can just pick up for free and they just dry in the sun. So I say, okay, you know, I mean, by all means, you know, take what you want, you know, right? So, so that gave us the idea to kickstart what we always wanted to do this year also. But I think this is a good catalyst to do it. We want to start 2,000 community libraries, right? And yeah, so, you know, yes, we cannot help all these in- individual homes that lost their mini libraries. But what we can do is we can start up a library, let's say at their school or at their community. So what we did was we, we spoke to the Subang Jaya MP, Michelle Ng, and we said that, hey, you know, we want to we, we, we want to start community libraries for, let's start off with the housing estates or, or, or villages that uh, were hit by the floods first. And um, here are like, you know, 500 books, a thousand books, you know, you can put it in a community space where, you know, all the kids can come and read or, or take it home. So in, in the calamity that we are facing, you know, this is something that gave us the, the, the opportunity to start off something else, you know. On the topic of contributing towards a cause, I know one way you all could contribute towards one particular cause, supporting independent journalism. And that's by subscribing to Malaysia Kini from as low as 12 ringgit per month. How about that, eh? As it is, the story that you just told us is 
it's difficult to hear. With the amount of books that were lost, especially the bit where you said about, you know, kids wanting the books and then, you know, you, you don't know whether you want to yeah, take it or, you know, this is ours. And to starting community libraries, what is the most difficult part throughout this entire process for you? I think for us, I mean, there are two difficult, there are two different aspects. One, as a business, to get back everything on track. It's not just, oh, you know, getting books again and then starting up, but, you know, uh, the cleanup process, you know, takes, is, is, uh, took us about three weeks to clean up the warehouse and then, you know, to get back our equipment. It takes about a month to have all our machines back, you know, to, to purchase them again. And then, uh, yes, thankfully, we have insurance. So, you know, to do the insurance claims, you know, it's very tedious. And also, you're talking about, you know, uh, downtime for almost one month to one and a half months. And mm. this downtime will uh, have a ripple effect, you know, so it will affect your revenue for the next few months. And if it's going to take you six months to actually replace the 3.5 million books, you know, your, you, will, you will see uh, uh, six months to a year, you might not be able to achieve the kind of uh, sales or revenue that you expect. So, you know, as a business and our business, uh, we work on very tiny margins. So any any little impact to to our revenue will cost us a lot. Yeah, and to hear that, you know, multi-million dollars worth of books were lost, that's a lot. And, you know, prior to the floods, were you prepared at all for uh, for whatever, you know, happened at your warehouse? And, you know, are there any steps taken to, you know, I wouldn't say avoid, uh, you can't avoid, but to prevent the amount of losses that you have lost this time around? I, I think uh, I can really r- relate to what uh, Ronu said just now, right? You know, uh, she being a city girl, right? <laughs> I'm a city boy myself. So never experienced floods before. And um, we've been here for seven years and um, we never expected something like this. And if you ask me, how, how do you prevent it from happening again? You know, I mean, we can't prevent it, no? Mm. Apart from maybe we can't build a dike in, in front, right? And... Um, we are actually in Shah Alam and Shah Alam is a new city. It's a purpose-built city. It's not supposed to flood, right? So all this, uh, uh, what we are facing here, you know, has to do with the environmental impact, you know, of, of what we do and uh, what we have done to the earth. And um, so how, how do you prepare again? Because sometimes we talk about, you know, the people in the East Coast. Every year, you know, their house gets flooded or every two years or twice a year. What, what can they do, you know? Right, they, mm. they, they, they can just put things above ground. But for us as a business, uh, we own the property. We cannot sell the property. It's not so easy. We just sell it. And you cannot just put everything above five feet now. You know, it doesn't work that way. It's I, more I than five feet already. Yeah, correct. All right. So I'm going to go back to Renuka. I understand that, you know, whatever we ha- you have been doing, whatever all the other NGOs and, you know, individual volunteers that have been doing over the past month or so, it doesn't stop here. Uh, the floods have slowed down, yes, but work doesn't stop because uh, there's a lot of restoration work, there's a lot of repair work that needs to be done and many communities out there that still are in dire need of help. What's next for your course? Uh, what is going on right now? Um, so yeah. for the next phase... After that, after you've met basic needs and whatnot, it's cleaning and rebuilding. So I know lots of people out there went out to help and clean. Um, you know, that's also what Andrew had to do at his warehouse as well. And then rebuilding. So for homes that, you know, were completely washed out. I guess like to Andrew's point as well, which is very, very true. Um, a lot of people say like, you know, just get the people to move to somewhere else. Um, you know, evacuate them or build their houses higher up on the ground. And 
the answer is that it's not so simple. A lot of people share a lot of sentiment to the land which they belong to. For example, the Orang Asli, that's their native land. And they're not going to move, you know, where are they going to move? So um, the next right. phase is actually rebuilding, helping people restore, make, making sure their homes are suitable and in living conditions. After that, it's actually, we're hoping to move into this phase, which is capacity building and awareness. Um, I think, like Andrew said, none of us know when it's going to happen and people mm -hmm. didn't know, which prevent, is why they, yeah. yeah, you cannot, what you can do is prepare people for this, right? Mm -hmm. And capacity building is very important. Um, we need to be ready for the next time that it hits. Uh, people also need to be skilled enough to know how to evacuate people and whatnot because we were really operating on, okay, now let's try and see, right, if it works, but it's also safety and you know, health, a lot of things that we really didn't know about, right? And the last is hopefully research and policy making. Um, I don't belong to this field, but I really think that's a very, very important piece mm -hmm. to make sure that the work that we've done in the last few weeks, you know, isn't just something that we do for two weeks, but to make sure we take a lot of our learnings and whatnot and move it into mm -hmm. research and policy making. So uh, mm -hmm. we're at step two now. We've got two more to go. We're hoping that we'll be able to go into that. Yeah. I think what's very important is that we know what to do when natural disasters happen elsewhere, like an earthquake. Um, in Japan, people know about things like that, you know, but why don't we know about like what to do when a flood happens? I also thought about like, mm. how do people get on the roof? I can't even think about how to get on the roof from my own house, you know? Mm, 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 so, you know, you start to ask a lot of these questions and really wonder, how do people figure it out? Um, you know, how do people know what to do? And the answer that we got is people didn't know how. They just knew that they had to find the way out. I think I can share a short story. Um, one of the guys that I visited, he said, I was sleeping at night and the water was at my feet. And the first thought is my 80-year-old mother needs to get out. And he's like, but how do I get her out? It's all flooded. It was above, you know, like neck level. And he said, But my only thought in mind is my mother, you know, like that's all he thought about that night. And he explained to us how he carried her, had to take her medication and, you know, he's a young man and his mother is a bit bigger. He needed to carry her out. He said, Saya pun tak tahu mana nak tinggalkan dia. Saya tak tahu mana, you know, the, you know, the areas where he could drop her off or, you know, to be safe. He completely didn't know anything. He said, Saya rasa sangat bersalah sebab saya tak tahu macam mana nak jaga mak saya. And then, at that time, I really didn't know what to say. I said, this is not your fault that you didn't know, you know. It's really not on him to know how to have managed this. He really didn't expect it. And I think that's really when I realized how important it is to really know, like, basic, you know, at least where's your nearest rescue center? What do you need to take? How do you move an elderly person? How can you ask for help? You know, these were things people didn't know. You know, people told us they... You know? And I would like to say that in some areas, we are very lucky in urban areas like Sri Muda. We saw people filming and all these things on social media, which created somewhat, if I may say, an echo chamber, right? So we saw a lot of content. But there were a lot of places that were missed because they don't have the same social capital or access, you know? And like, we need to think about how can we reach out to them? How can these people be educated to know how to ask for help? Who to call? So yeah, I think like when I really went individually to houses, I try to not talk to them and ask them about the flood because it's very emotionally traumatic to go through that. But if they tell us and, you know, we just listen and hold space for them. And I think a lot of them, you know, who are really just, yeah, I, I cannot even, you know, think about the words to express what they felt, right? Even listening was so hard. 
Um, but in times of this, I actually have another short story to share is that when our team went to Chino, which was actually inaccessible for a couple of weeks. So in Chino, um, water was stuck because in the they very nearby the Pahang River. And our team reached Chino at uh, this kampong in Chino about like seven or eight at night. And this kampong hasn't received food aid for five days because completely inaccessible. So there was a boat there, like a speed boat. And the guy said, Takpe, kita cuba je. Kalau sampai, kita sampai. So our team went on the boat, seven people, late at night. Ah, here I am from KL, like, come back, lah, come back. Takpe, takpe. I'm very worried about the safety of my team. And they went there. So they thought, like, you know, when they deliver, there'll be people just come and collect because, you know, we cannot waste time. And they said, no, 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 come help us, come help us load the stuff. And then there was like a trail of people help, you know, there ready to help to load the stuff. So they were wondering, why do they still need our help if they, you know, already have manpower? Do you know what they did? They actually cooked for our team. Even with so little that they had, they didn't even have much resources. They didn't even have electricity. But they cooked for our team, caught fish for them, made sure they had a really good meal and thank them for, you know, food that they have sent and whatnot. I just couldn't imagine, you know, people who have lost their lives, have lost everything, but still had that thought oh, to feed these people who are helping them. And I think I was completely moved. I mean, like, I wasn't there. I was back home and they sent us a message after to keep thanking us. And yeah, I think that really, like, sheds light lah, on the kindness that, you know, that's there with our people. It's appalling. You, you know, I got goosebumps hearing these stories from you. And also hearing, you know, the, the steps that you guys are, are taking to uh, keep the movement going. It's it's very touching. And, you know, it's very, very eye-opening to say the least. Lah. But now that we know, you know, how, um, you know, natural disasters like this could affect the people around us, what kind of contributions do you think uh, you will be needing, or, or you know, from both of your causes, from the public? What kind of support, what kind of contributions, how can we help you uh, further sustain these activities that you guys are doing? I think for me, um, it's more of, um, you know, the community libraries that we want to build. It's always, uh, it's a long-term thing because uh, if we feel that more Malaysians are well-read, they will make better choices, right? And we need Malaysians to make better choices, right? So one thing I always say that books are only accessible to those who do not need it. And books are not accessible to those who need it most. Because let's say like me, you know, you, Daryl, Renu, right? Your kids or future kids can go throughout their whole lives without reading a single book. They will be fine. You will still provide them education. You will still provide them a car or, you know, a house, you know, and all that. Kind. They will be fine. But 90% of the people who don't have access to books and they will not be fine. So our job, you know, is to make sure that, you know, we have enough support to be able to get books to those who need it most. Yeah, that's nice. How about you, Reno? I think like just to echo what Andrew said, I think literacy is at the heart of sustainability. There's, we cannot talk about all everything that I'm talking about if we don't talk about literacy. And so I'm just like here to echo and like support you, Andrew. Um, I think it's really yeah. like, it will take time, but it's very important. And I think on my end, what can people do now? So I think one is, if you are already with an NGO or on ground, is to keep checking on the needs of the community. They change day by day um, and to fill in the gaps, um, you know, and sometimes it can look like plumbing. Sometimes it can be look like, you know, they just need hardware supplies or sometimes it may be just, you know, 
even actually toys or things that children might need, school supplies. When Andrew shared that story, I actually remembered that a lot of people said, anak saya kalau tengok hujan lah, takut. When they hear the rain, they tell parents, we need to get out, we need to get out. Because it's traumatic. So, mm. so traumatic, right? And they find it very difficult to keep children very occupied and whatnot. And which is why I think like the books that, you know, Andrew's giving out or toys and all are very important to keep children occupied in such traumatic and devastating times. Um, but back to this, uh, one is really assessing the needs of the community and filling those gaps. Two is in the long run, what can you do when something like this happens? And my advice mm. is for people to go for disaster relief training. I know like Mercy Malaysia provides it. Um, first aid training, this is very important because in a lot of places, there was a lot of medical aid that needed help. And, you know, we didn't have people, enough mm. people. We mobilized a team of doctors, but they were too small as opposed like, to the, you know, number of people who needed help. And the most important thing that I would suggest that I think many of us can do is mental health first aid. Um, I saw a lot of calls for mental health first aid volunteers to help and we didn't have enough. So during your free time, go, go get trained, you know, first aid, mental health first aid, uh, disaster relief management so that we can learn. And four is that if there are any organizations that are providing um, disaster relief capacity building, learn and do train the trainers so you can go and train in a kampong you can speak mm-hmm, to people mm-hmm. to educate them because i think at the long term we need to think about sustainability and we cannot rely on the you know goodwill of the people and our continuous resources because they deplete um, and we will never have enough of them um, so we need to be prepared for the next time this happens and you know these are some of the suggestions uh. Um, and for Andrew, uh, for other business owners who have faced somewhat similar, you know, uh, issues that you have faced uh, due to the flood, what advice do you have for them? I think, you know, for business owners, uh, just like what we face too, you know, you just have to be strong, you just have to be positive and uh, always ask yourself, you know, what's the worst that could happen, right? I mean, it's just not, not even uh, for business people, but, you know, people in general. Sometimes we are so worried about uh, saying something or doing something or, you know, but always ask, you know, what's the worst that could happen, you know, right? And so, you know, and we just move on and, and just forge on, right? And, you know, there's no harm to ask for help when you need help. Just like mm. what Renu did, you know, she, she asked for help and she has, she has too much help, you know, that kind of thing, right? There's always, there's more good than bad out there, right? Um, believe it or not, we always talk about, you know, uh, uh, banks are, are, are always out there to, to make money from people and all that kind of thing. But when we were going through this period, the banks heard about it. And so all our banks actually approached us. We didn't even ask them. They said that, how can we help you? You know, and uh, we were not in really great relationships with the bank in a way that um, because, you know, the uh, COVID has, has also hit us, hit us very badly, right? Because we are event-based company. So uh, all the banks that, that uh, uh, we've been dealing with, they actually gave us what we asked for, you know, whatever relief that we asked for, they actually granted it to us. So it's quite amazing, you know, Daryl just asked for help and there are a lot of people, uh, you know, willing to help. And I think as a business standpoint, because, you know, I'm, I'm not familiar with how NGOs uh, uh, function and in terms of the commercial part of, of what's going on, right? Mm. Um, I think I feel that more people should be encouraged to look at our business model and what we do, right? And start off businesses with similar uh, structures like us. We are a business 
which is for the people first. You know, when we first started the business, we were just living month to month to make sure we can cover for next month to be able to survive, right? Work on tiny margins to make sure that, you know, uh, more people can read. The goal was to just to have more people can read. We didn't care at what price, but how many books we sold, how many books went out. Because you know that each book goes out, changes lives. Yeah, and Malaysia needs more uh, enterprises like 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 us like that. That's incredible. My final question is, what will be your biggest lesson learned from this entire experience thus far? I think sometimes when you don't know how to do it, um, it's okay to not know. You'll figure it out. I think that's my biggest lesson. I remember when I started, I was like, okay, we'll do one place one day. Um, and then I was like, day, day four, day five, day six, day seven. And then it was two weeks long and still ongoing. It's not knowing how, but really just persevering through grit. Lah. I think at the end of the day, it's great to persevere through uh, and to pull through, I think, and to finish what you started. I think that's a very important bit. And once you learn from it, it's really to think about sustainability. It's not just something one-off. Um, I thought like I'll just do right. this for a few days and I'll say bye-bye and, you know, I'll continue my day job. Um, but I knew that I, you know, couldn't just drop this off given how much that we've done and, you know, all that we've learned. So I think sometimes you don't need to know how. Um, you just need to have the right attitude to just, you know, figure it out. Andrew, what about you? What's your biggest lesson? I think, you know, like maybe not so much a lesson, but learnings that that we all can can contribute to each other. How do we connect other people who want to help because people help in different ways some people would like to give money some people would like to give in kind or some people who let's say uh, if she's connected to a grocer right and the grocer is willing to give her everything at, at his cost or the manufacturer at a cost she can actually get two or three times more supplies from that right and help more people you know so you know let's let's not lose things through the value chain there you know and Mm. Uh, one thing also is, um, as, as you know, you know, they always say that Malaysians forget easy, right? Forget very fast. But we should never forget all the, the lessons that we learned and, and all the hardship that everyone went through, you know, the, the, the life loss, property damage and all throughout this flood. And not just the flood, but don't forget the pandemic. Everyone is slowly forgetting about COVID already, right? Mm. Anyway, you know, Thank you so much, you both. Thank you so much, Renuka. Thank you so much, Andrew, for giving us uh, time from your busy, busy schedule. I know we caught this topic a little bit later on, but uh, you know, I'm glad, I'm so, so glad you both showed us the relevance on how much contributing to sustenance. And also, you know, one thing uh, I would like to say is we thank you so much for your contributions. We thank you so much. You guys are incredible. And we really, really hope we can get more people who contribute to causes like this, exactly like how you did. That's it for this episode of Euphoria by Malaysia Kini. I hope this episode opened up our eyes a little bit. And uh, we hope that future uh, natural disasters like this won't be as bad as how it was this time around. We hope there's a way where we can prepare a little bit more better. And yeah, we really hope we can catch you on, you know, the next few episodes on uh, further projects and campaigns that you guys are running. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. If you want to listen to our previous episodes, 
uh, you can always check us out on Spotify at Euphoria by Malaysia Kini if you want to check out our upcoming projects our upcoming episodes you can always find us on social media on Instagram and on Facebook at Euphoria MK thank you so much everyone for tuning in and we really hope to catch you on the very next episode till then take care